So if there's one thing I feel like I have been learning, I'm sure there's more than that. If there's one thing I suspect many of us have been learning over these last few months, it's that we have a deep desire within each of us to feel safe. I'm not sure I would have recognized this as much six months ago. You know, there is um, a fairly well-known quote by an ancient historian, Tacitus, who says, the desire for safety stands in the way of all that is good and noble. And I guess I can kind of understand that. There is a need for risk, isn't there? There is a danger sometimes if education is all about having safe spaces without hearing different ideas. We should not only hold on to safety. And yet, I'll tell you, in the middle of March, when all of this started hitting, I found that even if during the day I generally felt okay about things, during the nighttime, I started having a hard time sleeping. Maybe you're the same way. I would, I would start having in my mind going through my family and, and my own personal health and thinking about the church. And, and no matter how much I tried to kind of turn my mind away from it, or even when I prayed, my, my heart would keep pounding and I'd feel a bit of adrenaline. And, and even when I got to sleep, I would sleep rather fitfully. And, and really the reality was I didn't feel safe. And suddenly I realized how much I wanted to. And my guess is probably all of us, in one way or another, this is true for us. I mean, whether we're talking about social or emotional or physical safety. I mean, just, just think about different situations. Say for a moment you were invited to a party from a friend you don't know terribly well. What's the first thing you're probably wondering? It's, at least if you're me, do I know anyone there? And the reason is because when I'm there, I want to make sure there's people I feel comfortable with. There are people I want to feel safe with. We have a desire for safety. Or some of us, I know, are, are savers. Not just saving because we know it's wise, but financially, it's almost painful to make big expenses. We really like saving and saving in our bank account. And why is that? It's because when we've saved, we feel like we're protected. There's a kind of safety that we experience in that. We, we desire safety. When, when you, maybe you're not like this, but I am. If you ever find yourself having this really strange symptom, like some sort of strange stomach pain or that kind of thing, and it's late at night and you want to know about it, and you look at WebMD, what's the first thing you want to know? You want to know that you don't have cancer or a heart attack or something, even though it's silly to think that. That's the first question that we ask ourselves because when we don't know what's going on, we want to feel safe. And my guess is if that's not true of you, if you don't really know what I'm talking about, that's only because your safety has never felt threatened in any major way. When our kids were younger, when we would go to the playground, sometimes they would have a braveness that scared us when they were like climbing up stuff and it looked like there was like no fear whatsoever. But occasionally we would notice that like one of our kids would just be doing this and then they would kind of look, making sure we were there. And if they ever didn't know where we were, suddenly this confidence that they had would suddenly kind of dissolve into a kind of panic until they know we were there. And then, okay, we're safe, we're okay, now we can be brave again. And I think that's the way it is, that when we are brave, when we're able to be generous, when we're able to take risks, it's because there is a kind of sense of security that grounds that. And it's that sense that I think for many of us over the last few months has kind of ebbed away a bit, Right? Suddenly, it seems like every day we are reminded of just how physically fragile 
we are. A microscopic virus that we can't see suddenly is able to take people down. We're reminded of how fragile society is. It feels like, it feels like these things just keep on breaking stuff that we so completely take and took for granted. And, and it doesn't feel safe. And, and we desire that safety, don't we? We desire to feel safe. So, so sometimes I think what we do in that desire for safety is we try to find a feeling of safety. I think that's why some of us maybe will acknowledge that we're not as productive as we sometimes are. If you're anything like me, sometimes you find yourself scrolling through things online. Maybe you are someone who finds yourself Netflix binging. Maybe you find yourself escaping. And my guess is what you are pursuing in those moments is just a feeling that it's okay, a feeling of safety. Scripture speaks of that desire for safety. It uses the language of refuge. You know, if you were a few thousand years ago, and if you were living, you know, in a typical house, you were, you were threatened if you heard of, like, marauding barbarians or if you heard of storms. And what you wanted to do is you wanted to live close enough to a city so that if things happened that were bad, you could flee into a fortress, and there you knew you were safe and you had refuge. And, and one of the questions that the Psalms ask repeatedly is, where is your refuge? Where do you go to feel safe, to be safe. And what the Psalms remind us again and again, this is one of the themes that you see throughout the Psalms, we've already been hearing it over this summer, is that the only true and reliable refuge is not the government, is not our homes, is not our abilities. The only refuge that we can entrust ourselves to is God. That's, that's what Psalm 34 is, is about. You might notice that there are 22 verses in Psalm 34. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and that's no coincidence. This is an acrostic. Each verse begins the next letter of the alphabet of Hebrew, and the idea is that this is the A to Z of speaking about God as our refuge. And if you have it in front of you, I ask if you don't do to look at it, because we're just going to be looking at the different verses. Verse 8 really is, in my mind, the very heart of what this passage is speaking of. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, there's that refuge language. Now, that word blessed, that's a hard one to translate. Because blessed feels like a really churchy word, at least it does to me. I don't think of any other time that I talk about blessed are you, Tim, because you got a, an A in school or anything like that. The word that's translating blessed here is a much more relevant word. It, it really almost kind of has more of the idea of flourishing, of, of happiness, of, of good life. So if you just like look a few verses later when it talks in, in verse 12, what man is there who desires life? and loves many days that he may see good. That's, that's speaking of the blessed life, the good life, the flourishing life. And the promise that our psalm gives us is if you want to live well, if you want to enjoy life, if you want to flourish, here is the key. Make God your refuge. And really, this whole psalm is meant to instruct us. It's meant to help us to understand why we want God as our refuge, and it's meant to help us understand how we make God as our refuge. 
So, so first, why? We, we see kind of two different reasons, especially in the opening verses, speaking of how God, unlike every other refuge, will not disappoint. I mean, it's just the reality, right? Whatever we count on, other than God, cannot truly be counted on. Our bank accounts, no matter how big they are, will not protect us from being depressed. Our, our families, no matter how much strength we get from them, will not protect us from one of them dying or us dying before them. But God, the psalm say, this psalm says, God is the one who can be counted on no matter what. So verses 4 through 7, that's one of the things, that the idea of God will never let us down. Verse 5 is kind of the core of that, that paragraph where it says, those who look to God are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Um, so notice there's this emphasis on face, on look. Imagine, if you will, maybe there's a boy who has this majorly large little league game that he's about to pitch in, and he really wants his dad to come. And as the game starts and he's, he's just about ready to pitch, he looks in the stands, and he looks at every single person, and he sees his dad isn't there. And suddenly his face that was looking is downcast and disappointed. Well, what this promises is that will never happen for those who are looking to God. Their faces will never be downcast or ashamed because God will never be a no-show. Whenever we count on God and look to him, he will always show up. That's what this is saying. And David is saying that not out of just some abstract, hypothetical knowledge. Notice he's speaking from personal experience. Verse 4, it says, that I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Or verse 6, this poor man, talking about himself, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So what is he talking about? Well, I don't know if you noticed at the very beginning of our psalm, it says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. What is this talking about? So David, before he was king, was uh, an outlaw. The king Saul did not like David. He was threatened by him and he was trying to kill him. So David has to flee outside of his nation. He goes to the land of the Philistines, which is not the greatest of places for him to hide because that's the place that he has attacked multiple times with his army. And at one point, some of the soldiers realize that David is camping out in their own city and they capture him. And so he's crying out to God, asking God for help. And they are bringing him to the king of the Philistines, almost certainly to his death. And so what does he do when he has nothing else left to do? Right before the king sees him, he starts just kind of like letting his head loll and he starts drooling and he starts just kind of like scratching the walls and trying as much as he can to look like he's out of his mind. And the king comes and looks at him and, and he buys it. And he actually says, don't we already have enough madmen in our country? Do I really need another? Send him away. And, and David reflects after this and he understands what we should understand. This, this shouldn't have worked. I mean, this is just one step better than the little kid trick of doing this and just believing that no one will see you because you can't see them. This is not a brilliant plan that he has, and yet for some reason it worked. And what he understands in that moment is that God had heard his cry, and he answered him. And he, and he declares 
to us. He says, I want you to understand this is how God is. When we cry to him, he hears us. Which doesn't always seem to be the case. Have you ever found yourself, you know that time like when you're feeling really anxious, maybe it's the middle of the night, and you're really worried about something, and you're praying, and it feels half-hearted at best, and it feels like God is millions of miles away, and what you're doing means nothing. To you, it feels like God is so far away, and David says, don't trust your intuitions, because God hears when you, when you cry out like that, to us it feels like God is a million miles away. To God, it is like he is holding your hand and you are his little child and he is crying. you are crying out in his ear. He hears us when we cry. And he is near. It says, verse 6, sorry, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Just think of that in a way that I don't fully understand. We are told that right now, as we are gathered together, there are angels gathering with us. God's army protecting us. And and the point that David is making is that when you turn to God for refuge, you never need to worry about him being unreliable, being forgetful, not caring. He hears every cry, and he will save us from them all. Now, I realize that even as I say that, there is this kind of question that we feel, wait a second, and I want, I want to address that what about kind of question in just a moment. But I want us also to notice the second promise that David communicates in the next verse is not only is God someone that can be counted on, who will never let us down, he is also someone who will never make us feel like we're missing something. So, Verse 8 summarizes, taste and see that the Lord is, what, what, if you want to say, what should we say about God? Taste and see that the Lord is, he's holy, that the Lord is righteous, that the Lord is powerful, that the Lord is real. All of those things would be true, but notice that's not what he focuses on. Taste and see that the Lord is, is good. That is, he is delightful. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And remember, blessed is the life that is good comes to those who take refuge in God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Just just think about what that's promising. And think of all of the things that we feel at times we might be losing. Whether it's a fear of loneliness, will I lack relational connections in God? God says no. Whether it's a desire for success and making something of our lives, well, I lack that. God says no. Whether it's just a desire for safety and comfort and security, well, I lack that. God says no. Those who fear the Lord will lack no good thing. In fact, he compares this thing of the lions. If there's anyone in the world that seems to get what they want, it would be a young lion, right? They usually get whatever they're looking for, but it says the young lions suffer want and hunger because even they sometimes can't find their food. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Which is important because when we're talking about refuge and and our fear, it's not just a matter of making sure we don't die. That's important to us. But when we're talking about fear, it's that we don't, we we want our happiness to be protected. 
We, we want not just to keep going, but to keep going with joy. And, and God is saying, not only will I protect you physically, but I will protect every aspect of you. There is going to be joy found in me that is certain. And you, at the end of it all, will not find yourself wishing for anything if you have made God as your refuge. You know, I think of sometimes some of the people who I know who have followed Christ for decades. And I, and I get a sense that they see this more clearly than I. I think of this elderly lady who was kind of an apartment mate when I was in Wheaton. And she had almost not a penny to her name, but she couldn't help talking about Jesus whenever she met me. She didn't even know I was a Christian at first, but she would talk about, you know, Jesus, he just goes sweeter every day. And she meant it. I think of a man I know who's now in his 80s, who's dealt with his, his wife dying and him grieving that and that there is a joy and an interest in life and a desire to share the gospel that just fills him. And I see these are people who have come to understand that those who place their refuge in God lack no good thing. David says, blessed, blessed is the one who makes God his refuge. That is where the life of goodness is experienced. And yet I understand that even as we're hearing this, if you are anything like me, there is a part of you in the back of your mind that wants to hold on to this and yet goes, well, wait. Because you and I both know that there are many followers of Christ, people that we know and love, who cry out to God and yet still suffer. And, and that's something that our psalm actually is very explicit about acknowledging. Did you notice that even as it's making these promises about God being our refuge, what does, what does verse 19 say? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You know, if you ever hear someone proclaiming that if you are a Christian, that, you know, God will save you from all suffering. If we just trust in God, he will give us the health and wealth we desire. Here is the verse that you can keep on quoting and showing the Bible does not proclaim that. Many are, not just that the righteous sometimes will suffer, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And here righteous just means those who place their refuge in God. And we know this. We know that people who trust in God will experience extended, painful unemployment. We know that those who trust in God can experience divorce. We know that those who trust in God sometimes are diagnosed with cancer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But notice that's not how the verse ends. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. There is a promise at the end of the afflictions for deliverance. I think of, if, you, if you've ever heard the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, the soul that on Jesus, you know, like, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. The idea is not, I, it's that I will not bring you only out of suffering. Sometimes I will bring you through sufferings, but I will protect you and bring you to the other side. And that's, that's what's spoken here. And what that means as we're trying to think through what does it look like to place our refuge? How do we do this? What this is telling us is that a key part of making God our refuge is waiting. So, so we, we make God our refuge by calling out to him, by looking to him for help. Remember, that's what we focused on last week. 
But here it's saying, even as we ask God, we should realize that it's not always going to be immediate. Some of you might remember when I was, you know, like the Windows 95. Do you remember computers like that? These were the ones that I was using like in college. And, and sometimes if you were maybe using a computer, or your, maybe your parent was using the computer and they clicked on something, like they were trying to open a window and it didn't work. They would keep clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking. It's like, why isn't it working? And suddenly you like 72 windows covering the screen because there was a delay from the time you did something to the time it actually was able to do it. Now, I'm not saying that God is like that in terms of him not having the processing power to be able to handle our responses. But what I am saying is one of the challenges that we have is that we ask. And when we ask, we expect God to act immediately. And we doesn't, when he doesn't act immediately, we just believe it didn't work. But think even about the story that David is so excited about when he's singing this psalm. He, think of how he was in the Philistine nation. Don't you think when he first saw the soldiers coming at him, he prayed, God, please keep me from being captured. And yet he was captured. And then when they are held captive, Lord, please help us to escape. And yet they are stuck. It is only at the very last moment as they are crying out to God that God does exactly what he asks for. And this isn't the only time. I think of, I think of in the New Testament. So Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus, some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary and Martha sends word to Jesus that Lazarus is desperately sick. And, and so they're waiting. They, they've taken refuge in the Lord Jesus, crying out to him for help, and they wait. And Lazarus gets worse, and he's barely able to breathe, and still Jesus doesn't show up. And, and Lazarus, in, in agony, finally breathes his last, and he dies, and still Jesus doesn't show up. And they, finally he comes, and they cry. They literally cry to him, and only then does he resurrect Lazarus. And the point of these stories is to recognize that oftentimes what it looks like to take refuge in God involves waiting. Because God's timing is different from our timing. But even as we talk about looking to God for refuge, being crying out and waiting, we should realize it's not it's not a passive waiting. When I'm talking about the waiting of making God a refuge, I'm not saying we just kind of like, you know, sit on the road, waiting for the car to come, doing nothing, trusting that God will arrive at some point. No, the kind of waiting God calls us to when he calls us to make him our refuge is, is an active kind of waiting. So as you'll notice in verse 11, come children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, which is what he's already said is involved in making God refuge. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, there's a way we can deeply misunderstand what's being said here. This is not saying God will not even worry about listening to you until you've ticked off all the boxes of qualifying to be able to pray. First, do all these things. Then God might entertain something. Now, that's not at all. What God is saying is, you have called to me for refuge. And, and now let me tell you the way that is good. Let me give you the way of safety, the way of life that you might walk in it and enjoy. It will not at times feel like the right way. But trust me, I am calling you to safety when I'm giving you these instructions. There is not a single instruction that God ever gives that is just a favor to him. It is always a kindness to us. 
In other words, what I'm saying is that when we make God our refuge, when we call out to him and we wait, we also listen to him. And he says, this is the way to walk as you wait. Let me, let me try to um, unpack this a little bit with an illustration. I have a, a friend who, um, from his time of adolescence, has only known same-sex attraction. He, he would love to be attracted to a woman, but he, he, he's just not able to. And yet, at the same time, even as, as that is true, he is also convinced that Scripture says that sexual relationships are only between a married husband and wife. And so he has this longing, this longing for intimacy. He has this fear of what it looks like for him to be alone all of his life. And he cries out to God. And at times he's experienced God's kindness, bringing him into connection with people, helping him to know how to move forward. And and, and while he is crying out to God and waiting at times, he also seeks to obey, seeks to continue to live the life that God has called him to live. And so he walks and he waits And he trusts in God that God is good. That's what it looks like to make God our refuge. It means in our time of need, crying out to God, looking to God for safety, waiting on God, and then as God instructs us, even in areas that feel so counterintuitive, we walk believing that God always calls us to what is good. There are times where we will feel probably super distant from God and will feel alone and we will cry out to God feeling spiritually dead and we will wait and God will say, even as you wait, keep praying, keep listening to my word even as it feels dead to you. Or there will be times where in our marriage we just we feel completely undone. And we see no way forward. And God says, wait on me. And as you do, continue to do what doesn't seem right, to lean and to love, because that is what I call you to do. Or there are times where we can look at the world and feel so frustrated and almost hopeless with the world and we cry out to God and God says, wait, and even as you feel hopeless, continue to serve, continue to love, continue to seek first my kingdom because this is the way I call you to go. Eugene Peterson said that the life of the Christian is a life of long obedience in the same direction. And I think that's right. And I think that's really what it looks like when we are saying we're making God our refuge. It involves calling, it involves waiting, and it involves this long, confusing obedience in the same direction. Which means, paradoxically, I think making God our refuge is both the easiest thing to do and the most difficult thing to do at the very same time. On one hand, it is easy. It is not like God is calling you to do some massive feat. He's not wanting you to build a building or do something amazing. He's calling you to helplessness. He's calling you to cry out. He's calling you to let go. And especially for some, maybe children especially, that sometimes can be even easier. But, but for some of us, to let go, to give up control, to surrender can feel like a kind of death to us, and it can be excruciating. 
And this is why even as God invites us to make him our refuge, he also declares to us something that we really need to hear. And that is that we have in Jesus a Savior who absolutely gets it. Hebrews says that in Jesus we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. He knows what it's like. It says he was subject to human weakness. He knows what it's like to be weak. He was subject to temptation. It speaks of how he cried out to God with loud cries and tears, which means he understands what it is like. He understands why it is hard for you and for me at times to make God our refuge. He he knows what it is to cry out to God and to feel like God is utterly absent in the moment. And he knows what it is in that darkness to walk in this long obedience in the same direction even unto death. And that means he is able to be gentle with us. But he also knows what is on the other side in a way that none of us do. He knows what is on the other side of that because he has tasted God's deliverance, not just from the moment, but from sin and death itself. He has now experienced the utter joy of coming before as a human being, God, seeing him face to face. He knows with utter delight what it means to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it is this resurrected, triumphant, and yet utterly gentle king that comes to you and me and says, I know what you are enduring. He does. He knows. And I also know what lies on the other side. I I know where God is bringing you. And I can't wait for you to experience that. And he says to us, I want you to know that you are not called to do this alone. Come to me, he says, all of you, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, for you will find rest in me. For my my yoke is easy My burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. There is no safer place for you or for me than to be in Christ as our refuge. And scripture says, blessed is all who take their refuge in him. So I'd like for us, just as we respond to God's word, to take just a moment and and to do exactly this, to turn to God as our refuge. Maybe that means confessing and acknowledging ways that we have failed to do that. Maybe it means just bringing all of the stuff that we're dealing with right now that we've been trying to control and just saying, God, help me. But whatever it is, would you please take a time to make to kind of actively make God your refuge in prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. So let's pray silently together.